arguing with your loved ones is complicated, especially when it comes to fundamental differences in the way you view the world. Windfall has all the big picture questions and addresses them in close-up picture ways through people's choices, relationships, and hopes. Come find out all the energy and thoughts that went into Windfall with Bob and Adam Raimonda right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. Last week, we introduced you to the dystopian drama of Windfall, with three brothers fighting for survival, a gang member who gets an offer she can't refuse, and a shopkeeper who is sick and tired of what others say is her place. Bob Raimonda is one of the writers of Windfall, along with his co-writer, Christy Donato. Windfall blossomed from work that he'd written in the past for the literary magazine he founded, Breadcrumbs. His brother, Adam Raimonda, is an accomplished sound designer and composer with a list of credits as long as my arm. These three are a powerhouse team, especially when tackling difficult conversations about where each character's story has been and will go. We'll talk about what important skills and mythology and world-building Donato brought to the table, especially when building things like the wolf pack and the unfortunately familiar Queen Wanda. Please note that this interview contains discussions of racism and police violence. Take care of yourselves. Hey, thank you so much for coming on to Radio Drama Revival with us today, Adam and Bob. We're really excited to have you to talk about Windfall. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Excited to be here or in yes. our homes. In our, <laughs> with in you. our, in our homes. <laughs> Each of us in our respective home uh, as, as dictated by our current reality. Uh. <laughs> uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> Just to start on a down note, right there. Uh. Uh, <laughs> uh, but let's let's set the scene for everybody here, right? For your entry into fiction podcasting. So, breadcrumbs um, is uh, the audio pair to your literary magazine of the same name, um, where you put to audio a series of performances that were, or a series of blog posts, things that were originally published on the Breadcrumbs blog. Um, so tell me about the inception for that podcast and adapting those written works to different forms of audio, because you've got full cast dramas on there. You've also got solitary performances. You've got poetry, all this stuff. So with the Breadcrumbs podcast, it was something that um, I was really inspired by what Bob was doing with uh, Breadcrumbs Mag. Uh, it's something that he founded, and I felt like this was a way for us to try to dip our toes into the audio fiction, audio drama space. It was something where we were both, I think, listening to a lot of Welcome to Night Vale and maybe We're Alive and... Arts Paradoxica, Arts Sessions. Yeah, you know, all the normal things. Um, from Classics. around that time, this was 2015, 2016 era. Um, and we... 
yeah, I was just really inspired by what Bob was doing. I was like, okay, let's let's try to adapt some of these um, submissions that people have that are from the site um, into actual um, audio productions. So we did kind of two different types of episodes. We did a, one ep a type of episode that was following the trail. So the whole premise for breadcrumbs is that you, you know, take a piece of um, prose or poetry or um, nonfiction that's on the site and sort of write something new or produce something new, whether it's illustration or what have you. Um, off of a previously existing piece or use that as your jumping off point for inspiration so that we followed the trail of these breadcrumbs by making sort of um, little like two to three segment episodes that had either the people reading their prose or poetry and then I would sound design and mix around that. Um, and then we would also do every... Uh, Bob Bob has a thing with the number five, and yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it started when I worked at Burger King, and I had to wash five trays at a time uh, when I was fourteen. And every ever since, I've had to do everything at fives. Why are there only three seasons of Windfall Plans? No, uh, never mind. Well, well, please, uh, please don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Uh, <laughs> don't, please don't open that bloodgate. <laughs> so sorry. Please, we'll, we'll get to why I feel that way later, I guess. But um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, Bob has to think about number five, and so. Uh, on the the 25th post of um, Breadcrumbs, we actually did something with Josh Rubino, who ended up being in Windfall and kind of ended up being a collaborator with us on a bunch of different things. Bob wrote some um, a story about a trucker who was alone just kind of dictating into his diary. Um, and it was a fun little foray into... Just, okay, how do we play some sounds around this? How do we, you know, kind of get people into a space? Um, and then every 25th post for a while, we would do a new audio submission that was its own, that wasn't, that was kind of inspired off of a previous one, but wasn't like a following the trail episode. Um, and we ended up making a bunch of those. And I think we did like 16 episodes of the podcast. Um, and then for sort of a variety of reasons, it just kind of, um, one of which was kind of focusing a little bit more of our attention on, you know, putting the ideas into Windfall, thinking about how do we produce this thing? How do we make it into, you know, uh, how do we make this into a reality? Um, we sort of phased it out. Um, I don't think it was that gracefully, but we, uh, but we did. Um, <laughs> Graceful is not the word I'd use, but it's... It's it happened. Okay. It happened. It happened. Uh, that, yeah, that period of time was in my life was also a time TM. Ah, so. yes. The, we know those. Yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, so I read that Windfall was originally conceived as a graphic novel. Um, and that Adam spent an entire year begging to create a, a fully soundscaped fiction podcast with you. Um, and then those things combined to make Windfall an audio reality. So what was the process that you 
Adam and your co-creator, Christy Donato, undertook to adapt the story and Proxima to podcast form? So this was really, you know, so, so much of that, that year was just trying to figure out what our idea was. And it was, you know, we spent a lot of time just like watching TV pilots and figuring out like, okay, how, how do we make a good pilot before we even had an idea? And then we were driving to a concert with my partner one day and she just says, what about Argus? Um, and Argus was the character that I had been writing about on breadcrumbs for a long time. It was just prose at that point. But in my mind, I was, that was when I was getting into comic books and that was, it just seemed like such a visual world to me that it felt like the next step, even though I didn't know, you know, who could be my artist. But the second that she said that, um, alarm bells just started firing. And it was like, I had so many short stories about these characters that I already sort of had a, a very loose structure of what a season could look like, just, just from how much I had already written about them. Um, so before we even brought Christy on board, I actually just did a very, very loose outline of what a season would look like. And by loose, I mean, literally I did, I did three sentence per episode. What would be the A story? What would be the B story? And what would be the C story for all 10? Um, and then I just tore through a draft in, I don't know, five or six months. And wow. that's when we decided, um, you know, we really needed to get some beta readers on it. And so Christy was originally just supposed to be a beta reader, but her feedback was so incredible and her insight to the things that were not working um, was so strong that it really made sense at that point um, to, to bring her in and really let her help me tear it down and rebuild the whole thing all over again. So actually, let's let's talk about Christy. Um, let's and let's 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 talk her up a little bit here. So you brought Christy Donato onto the team, and you, um, in several places, you cite her knowledge of mythology as being a huge contributor to the world building um, of Proxima. So what mythological work uh, did she help build into the world? How did that manifest? So a lot of the ideas of how. I'd say like the wolf pack was structured and also just the sort of uh, Wanda's history on the planet, um, what brought her there, why she was there, um, and how the rise of that wolf pack in concert with the rise of this small child uh, would could really shape a society. Um, in really interesting and intense ways. Um, so, so much of that sort of world building, but also just on a granular level, like we really worked and we each wrote every single episode. And so we broke them out by characters. And there were a couple of characters where she pointed out to them and just said, these characters don't really work yet. You know, they, they don't have a real motivation. Um, I don't buy what their, their general arc is and really getting into the weeds of individual characters and figuring out what made them tick and what made them important to the world rather than just another character for poor Adam to have to deal with. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like Chrissy was, um, 
really crucial with a lot of this like world building uh, and character work, uh, which is what makes Windfall so complex, which is really impressive in an audio form. Uh, but one of those other things is, of course, the sound. So, Adam, let me just say that my initial notes on Windfall in 2019, I just wrote the sound, my God, the sound, like a character driven to a brink in an Edgar Allan Poe story. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The sound. The sound. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's spend a moment here talking about Windfall sound and the inception for it, like how you started there. So you've got Bob and Christy over here tearing down this script, building it up again. Um, but what what are the components that you were thinking of when you started building Windfall's audio aesthetic? Um, well, I think I, I mostly wanted Bob to write a show of this size so that I could write a score because I've always wanted to write a show, like the score to a TV show. Basically, it was my like big goals. Um, and so I was like, well, you know, I, I wanted to be able to build something where I could have the sort of you know, some recurring themes and motifs and things like that to sort of build and sort of reinforce some of these character arcs that we have in the world that is Windfall. Um, and part of that um, was also building like a realistic soundscape around it um, to kind of feel like, okay, we're sitting there in the room or we've got like a camera of, you know, the listener's mind that's, you know, focused in on these characters and how we can play with that to use perspectives to go back and forth between different areas um, to to try to put emphasis on, you know, who we're following in that moment. Um, I think I, I was just so inspired. I've just been really inspired by film and TV sound, but also just, you know, there's really two... I was worth I was just so inspired by shows like The Truth, so Jonathan Mitchell. I was so inspired by Ars Paradoxica, Misha Stanton. I was so inspired by Casey Wayland from We Are Alive. Um and sort of I was just so impressed and enthralled with the idea that you can have all of these additional sounds in there like the, you know, the moving of clothing and with the foley and the footsteps and then the different reverbs that make the sound or the room or the walla like the characters talking in the background um to just be able to like illustrate like a pretty detailed picture in somebody's head that is like unique to each person but still has like a pretty big like glue that keeps everybody um together so i i think it was just that combination of the desire to like write sort of big to epic music and then also just like this uh really like enthralling sound that i was inspired by from a bunch of other amazing creators he was also so impatient that he was starting to score while we were still just editing the scripts um, and not a ton of that made it in, but our theme song is one of the earliest pieces of music that Adam wrote for the show. Um, and he's definitely gotten like better instrument samples. So it sounds better than that first version, but the overall, um, 
melody of it and the performance of it has has remained pretty constant from the beginning. Uh, so let's um, let's talk a little bit about the the story here in in Windfall. Um, so uh, first, um, considering how many balls you're juggling in Windfall, it could have been really easy to have caricatures for characters or a farcical approach where it actually wasn't warranted. So how did you go about balancing the surrealistic aspects of Windfall's science fiction with the exploration of serious concepts of police brutality and wealth disparity? Like, and why was this balance important? So I think a lot of that just came from the characterizations that we had, you know, from the very beginning. Um, Wanda and Tin Man are actually the first two characters that I ever wrote. It was breadcrumb number three. And at that point, Wanda was just a little nine-year-old wandering around the castle with this just like doting robot butler chasing after her. Um, and that was it. That was just a small little piece of microfiction. We had this girl who from a very young age had been given all of this power that she didn't know what to do with and how that would sort of affect her growth and the society's growth um, and how stunted she would become as her life went on. Uh, and so we had these very sort of uh, silly, weird seeming characters, but we, we really did want to explore like what does having that sort of cartoonish unhinged dictator mean for the people that are living day to day in their society i'm not at all inspired by the world that you know we live in just kidding not at all um but we also it was just really important to us you know it was it came from Obviously, my obsession with podcasts, but but also really my obsession with television and wanting to create a big, full cast sci-fi fantasy show that that did get into the weirdness, but also really, really got into the in-depth human emotions that these characters were experiencing. We did a lot of rewriting was a big part of it, was that every time a new batch of scripts would come through... You know, that Bob and Christy would divide and conquer these scripts. And then every time there was a new round of them, we would kind of everyone would read them and try to give their feedback about, OK, what do we feel like? Whose motivations don't we get? Who like, why is this person doing this thing? And I think that that was one of the things that I sort of came out of the script was like okay how do we fill in those blanks of like okay how do we justify this scene you know okay like we like what this is doing in the story but we don't think that they are that this character is there yet like what do we need to add in to make um it believable that they would be you know at this point there was a whole point um, in time where kendall had a brother but you never met the brother and her whole motivation was to try to like lift her brother up from poverty but he was such a thinly sketched character that 
that I never wrote the same name when talking about the brother because that's how forgettable that plot line was to me in general. And so that's why really in bringing Christiane, what was really wonderful is that we divided it up by characters, you know? So she really mm -hmm. owned Kendall and Pav and I really owned Argus and Helena. And, um, you know, we split the burden on a lot of other characters, but those two, like, core groups of, you know, our, our leads, we really sort of divided and conquered. And I think that really helped us make sure that we weren't falling by the wayside with anybody because it wasn't just one person trying to fill out every single character. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to go about it is dividing all of these major characters that have a lot of, a lot of plot and a lot of history and backstory um, between writers. That's really, really clever. Um, and a good way to make sure that you don't suddenly find that you've given the brother three different names over the course of 50 pages. <laughs> yeah, we cut him. <laughs> so we were talking about here about um, like Queen Wanda and, and her inception in this micro microfiction. And of course, the fact that she feels a little bit too real some days uh, with her cult of personality led by the wolf pack. Um, and it does also remind me of the tension between... Um, Gaius Baltar and Lara Rosalind, Rosalind in Battlestar Galactica. So what is it about cults of personality that are so suited for science fiction? Why are they so creepy? I think because as we've seen, as a species, we're so susceptible to them. Like, and this doesn't just manifest, obviously, in rulers, but also just think about, you know, the way we deify celebrities who, they're, they're just people, but because of the platform and the power that we've given them, people do absolutely insane things for them. And so to be able to take that very real part of being alive and amplify it up to 11 and bringing in all of those more fantastical elements that come from science fiction allow us to shed light on something very real but make it feel uh very out of this world and like it could never happen um just simply because of the you know the clothes that you dressed it up with I think Bob and I have been obsessed with this concept from a lot of different fiction over the years as well. And I think there's like a lot of, you know, inspiration in there. I think, you know, you hit it on the head with like Battlestar Galactica, but, you know, we see it in a lot of other things as well that, you know, we consume and unfortunately in the real world. And I, I did, it was hard to say like how much Wanda would feel like our current administration as well. It was really disappointing uh, in a big, big way. Yeah. Um, I was talking with David about this and we were going over, going over questions. And one of the things was of course that like Trumpism is a, is an almost like, it's very clearly part of like what you were thinking about. And it's kind of like a, I don't want to say like an easy reach, but like, it's, it's an easy leap, right, to get there. But other things that I was thinking about are also things that are, are related to this, right, like North Korea and um, and also cults of personality on, like you mentioned, with celebrities. I was also thinking about things like TikTok and influencers on social media and things like that. So, um, 
yeah, I think that this is a really like ripe, a ripe aspect of how society tend like has this tendency to flow uh, sometimes mm-hmm. to sort of shine a light on it and be like, hey, this is weird and bad. <laughs> yeah, especially because as we were first starting this, it was like, you know, it was before the election. And so obviously, mm-hmm. like the campaign was happening and, and you understood what kind of character and person Donald Trump is. Uh, but then, you know, we spent our next year still editing and reworking those scripts actually living in a Trump administration. So I think in the beginning, it was like not something that at the time we expected to be real. And so we sort of saw the the analogs to what we were experiencing, but that wasn't necessarily the intent right at the time, but it certainly informed it as that first year went on and we actually moved into production and, um, also, even into post-production, a lot of the things that we sort of added that weren't even in the scripts, a lot of the sort of Wanda announcements, that was an Adam post-production idea that um, Jess Clark, who plays Wanda and actually joined our writer's room for the second season, and Adam just had a lot of fun with just sort of improv those and figuring out the places of where they'd actually exist and how they'd work um, in the series. So... That is something that definitely like grew and changed and heightened as we moved deeper and deeper into pre and post production. And and actually, the the trailer uh, was directly inspired by we were it was getting into to March or February of two thousand eighteen at the time, and we were like, we need a trailer. And I don't really know what to do for this. And the um, Trump's first like uh, address to the nation, where he, you know, claimed that he needed a border wall. You know, it, it just it was such an abuse of power. It it was just so infuriating to me. And immediately, like after watching it, I was like, oh, this is what we can do as a trailer because the whole setup is you know, this build up towards contact day. What do we need? Like Wanda needs to address everybody in this way to tell them that contact day is coming and that you should be so happy and so grateful that we're all going to participate in this. And it's just nature of it being so out of touch. You know, Wanda is so out of touch with what is actually happening. You know, it just, it felt like it fit perfectly into what we needed. Windfalls trailers are... Uh, trailer is one of my favorite trailers. Um, so that's all Adam and Christy. It. Adam had the idea, and Christy banged that script out so quickly, and it was just so <laughs> perfect. And was I was just good. thrilled when it came through. <laughs> like I got to just enjoy the process. <laughs> truly, <laughs> I just sent her a link to the to that address to the nation and. Uh, a bit from Andrew Ryan from Bioshock. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Bioshock. Uh, I saw also that Mass Effect was a big influence on Windfall. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
Yeah. Bioware games in general have always Bioware been games. very, very huge for Adam and I. Uh, Adam and I does not. Adam and I. Adam does not like the fact that I have very much admitted that Proximans look like the Asari from Mass Effect. Uh, but that's always what they've looked like for me. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know uh, I have it on tape. Uh, <laughs> I just um, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just, you know, <laughs> I just, I kind of felt like part of me wonders if we should have been more explicit about it in the show because my whole thing was like, oh, I don't. In uh, one of the things that I admired about Night Vale is that it was able to like build up this, you know, sort of world without actually having to like physically describe anybody. And so you got get to sort of make your own interpretation in your head. And that was like something that I wanted people to be able to do. Um, but sometimes I wonder if it's clear enough um, from the get-go of like, okay, we're not, you know, it is not Earth. We try to say it as much as possible. But Yeah, yeah. That was also not in the script and then in something that we added in post-production where it was like, oh, yeah, we, we need to try to be clearer about this. So that, like, again, that was how we used those newscasts. There were, it was a lot of, like, literally just in the sound cue like there's a newscast on the television in the background and we'll figure it out later sort of things and so then figuring it out later was like okay what doesn't work narratively that we can't bring our cast back to fix that we can just cast an ensemble person to, to help us flesh out it is always a hell of a time to be listening to the wolf pack run the streets in windfall in episode two, we hear Helena's friend Sylvie utter the famous words, we aren't all bad, right? Um, mm. uh, so we're we're all white or white passing here in this conversation, uh, just to make that explicit for our audience. Um, so I want to ask you both, how have you gone about having difficult conversations with people you know about police brutality um, to people who have said not all cops? So this is a this is definitely a ripe one. Um, I, I I mean it's a it's a personal failing for me to say that I have a very hard time having this sort of conversation with certain members of my own family, um, and it's not something that I'm proud of. That a lot of the time it's easier for me to avoid conversations like that in general. Um, and yet at the same time, I've had a much easier time having these conversations with my partner's family. Um, for context, I live very far away from my family. And I think for some reason, it's easier to have those conversations in person when you can actually look someone in the eye and empathize with them and, and try to explain that like yes your neighbor who's a cop might be a nice person to you but the institution of the police aren't nice to a lot of people and there's a reason that they're nice to you because they were built and designed to be nice to you and the the neighborhoods that you're in and it's not an easy conversation but it's an easier conversation to have in person and because I'm so far away from my family and I know a lot of 
our ideal ideologies are so fraught. Um, it's very much a surface level, let's talk about anything but that in the brief times that we speak to each other. And I've dealt with this a lot in therapy, specifically this year, and how, you know, much it's it's torn me up and disappointed me in myself. But it's I, I don't want to lie and pretend that uh, I'm better than that. A lot of it came with, you know, what would be the power that could elevate the concept and the idea of centering worship and progress as a nation uh, on the soul of one person. Um, and so, you know, just like thinking back uh, in the history and things that like have never actually come out in an episode, but in my mind, they were, they always sort of started as this, this true cult that was very small and slowly just got more and more followers and went on sort of, you know, to bring it back to our, uh, you know, real world, but like mission styles trips of spreading the good word of Wanda. And, you know, it really started out as this sort of religious faction that as they grew in, in power and status really became this paramilitary organization. Um, and so we wanted to really show, you know, in the three Wolfpack characters that you meet in, in Root, the, you know, ladder climbing bureaucrat who will step on everyone to, to get the most power for himself in the world, um, to Sylvie, who is a victim of one of those mission trips, but has through her experience of then, you know, fully taking on that ideology, become a fascist herself, um, who does view herself as one of the good ones, to Kendall, who has literally, you know, lived on the ground as the most bottom level poor, who is literally just trying to get by and survive in the world. And she's sort of given this path, do I continue being the the criminal that I've been in the eyes of the society, or do I get myself a good job with health insurance and live the easier life? And so we really wanted to try to, to show what being in the Wolfpack was like through these very three different perspectives and, and why a person would, um, you know, cater to that ideology. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's talk a little bit about, um, uh, some audio here, uh, like the sound work. So Windfall is impressively action-heavy audio work, right? It has a lot of movement, a lot of speed changes, clashes between people. Um, we've seen some of this before, right, in podcasts like Joseph from Ear Epic and Marsfall, just to name a couple. So talk to me how you about how you went about achieving action that can be clearly followed only with sound and the roles of both of things like Foley and music in this process. Yeah, I think part of it even starts at like when when you're recording and ensuring that we had the performers give us something that could motivate the sounds that were going on. So even in the very first scene in Windfall, it's our three uh, 
brothers Argus, Shema, and Cass, who are sort of in the sewers, and they were sort of running through trying to catch their next meal. Um, and what we had them do is run in place and huff and puff and shake their arms and, and you know, and not punch any microphones, but like, <laughs> you know, and we're, we're not really... <laughs> we're, 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 like we're trying to basically just capture the the not necessarily any movement or clothing sounds or anything like that but just the breath and other things like that that would motivate the sounds that were going to go through that i would say even if you have your characters i'm i editing a scene from another show today that i wish i had uh the the actors do this like uh, we have something where there's a scene where somebody's drinking coffee. We don't have them drinking coffee, but then they're also walking down a hallway and I don't have them like moving their arms. Cause you just breathe a little bit differently. You say things a little bit differently, like when you're thinking about movement. And even if it's a little exaggerated from what it would be because you're not moving around and not doing these other things, it's, um, it, it's something where it just helps what ever you put underneath it be a little bit more believable um so i think that that's like the first step there and then after that it was a lot of like realizing how many other sounds are underneath each piece there i think even the first like three or four episodes of windfall while they have a lot of you know information in there i wasn't really doing a lot of like clothing type of sounds and a lot of like foley in that way and i think that like the latter episodes of the season really do have a little bit more believable sound because i was like oh, okay I've, i got some feedback from somebody that was like i think like you know i should hear them move around a little bit more and i was like what does that even mean um and <laughs> <laughs> and i was like ah like i went back and listened and i was like okay i'm just like i'm just hearing footsteps i'm hearing chairs move around i'm hearing you know um the stomps are dropping of bags or sort of equipping of weapons or whatever i'm hearing all of these different things but i'm, I'm not hearing the, them move around so it was like okay what like what type of clothing are these people wearing um you know what type of floor are they walking on like being obsessed about creating the what my image of it I, I have a really hard time visualizing but i was just trying to i was like forcing myself to do it um <laughs> where you know trying to imagine what type of materials you know certain places would have one thing adam did with with music specifically and he sort of touched on this before but in his scoring um that i thought really helped define the different locations throughout the the series and the characters themselves was by using different combinations of instruments to define different characters that we were following um and so like for instance for kendall whenever you've got one of kendall's themes it uses a lot of like crunchy distorted acoustic guitar and uh, he really paid attention to that so that even in those little interstitials of transition music through the introduction of those instruments, you'd sort of know where you're going and who you're going to end up at next before that actor even spoke their next line. Um, and I think he did such a wonderful job with that in our score specifically that I really just like, I listen to and I adore. 
Yeah, um, and th- just basically spending an unreasonable time on uh, amount of time on the episodes, which I don't know that I would recommend <laughs> to anyone. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it, but I also sacrificed a lot of my personal time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> if I may use some understatements, uh, family is complicated. <laughs> so in it is in in Kaz, <laughs> Shema, is. and Argus, we see three brothers who are tearing each other apart more than they are building each other up. So when do you think we need to draw boundaries in our relationships, and when do we need to show empathy for their flaws or problems? And most importantly, how do you reflect on these things in the brothers' relationships in Windfall? Learning to set boundaries is so important and something I'm only really just starting to try to teach myself how to do now. Um, I think, you know, Adam and I are the best of friends and we're creative partners. And I think obviously we spend so much more time building each other up than tearing each other down. And yet at the same time, because we're brothers and we've known each other our, our whole lives, we know how to tear each other down better than anyone else in the world. Um, and sometimes working together on something this massive uh, and this time consuming has us bring that out in each other. And I know you're, you started with asking about the brothers in the series, but I think so much of it um, comes from just knowing our own dynamic. And, you know, there's the two of us, but we also have a myriad of other siblings. There, there are lots of us. And so... The construction of our family is quite complicated, which is why I think that that came through in the scripts in Windfall, because it was something that was just like, well, that's what, not exactly what our life is like, but the sort of struggle to find a healthy way to have familial relationships in a constructive way is um, I think a theme in our own lives Um, and I think a lot of people's lives you know if we're all being honest about it you know oh yeah right Um, but so I I think that that's why like you know we find these characters relatable but um, it's having that dynamic between the three brothers uh, was really important, and I I don't think I quite realized how deep it would be until we had our actors uh, performing those together, <laughs> um, and it was so good. It yeah. was so good to have the three of them in the room together, and you know we really did like. We did voiceover boot camp for a week. And so everybody was just like right on top of each other. It was the middle of the summer. It was very hot. And so like working through these scripts and then just like wrapping at the end of the day and having meals together and having drinks together, um, those dynamics really just like generally started to uh, come out in people. Now, granted, they were all just building each other up. No one was was tearing each other down because everyone was really excited to be working on this project together. So I don't want to go to the negative connotation of it. But it was incredible to see the bond form between the three of them literally in the room um, in a way that I never could have imagined while writing it. And we are so blessed to have the cast that we have. Um, But them 
specifically, like I'll never get over the dynamic that they were able to put together. Um, also just to like talk about their relationship in a more textual way and in a less like, you know, how just our lives work. Um, I think it was really important for them to have this very sparring style dynamic because of their disparate, disparate age gap. Um, you know, when their parents died, Shema was around 15. Um, he was, you know, obviously not an adult, but far more aware of the what was going on in the world around him and also had just that much more time with his parents. Um, Cass was five or 10. I don't remember the exact age range that we have, but like aware enough that he experienced them and bitter that they were gone. Um, and so he has this sort of like bitterness about him and jealousy of Shema just for having had that extra time with his parents. Whereas Argus was a newborn and just has no concept of them. So he's just filled with this like boundless curiosity and, uh, just joy in every interaction with like wanting to learn about them. Um, and I think Cass is sort of jealous of both of them in that way that Shema A got more time, but Argus didn't have any time. So he doesn't know what he's missed. And so I think just like textually that made a really, made it really easy to have their relationship to be fraught in a way uh, that I'm just really proud of. Like, I love their dynamic so much. And I just love our cast. So much. I really love our cast Argus, so otherwise much. otherwise known as my precious baby child. Um. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Argus. <laughs> so let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into the text here uh, for the brothers. Why does Windfall's epic revolve around the three brothers? What's important? about that so i mean there's the very surface level answer that argus was just the character that i had written most about already and so he was the one that i had most strictly sketched out in my mind um but really you know as as big of an epic as this series is you know my my favorite kinds of these types of stories are stories that are about family, whether that be found family or, or the family that you were given. And so I really wanted to show the way that family intersects, um, both with, you know, again, the, the family that you're graced with and the family that you choose and how those aren't always the same people. Um, but that, you know, your family is your family, no matter what, for all of its positivity and negativity that can that can come along with that. So I think just like having that really sketched out was really important to me because I wanted to show how this world was affecting people on a really granular level. And I could have made this cast so massive and it could have just been all sorts of different characters from around the city. There are so many different types of characters that could exist in Windfall that we just have not met. I think Adam would have um, killed you. But <laughs> grounding it in that single family way allowed it to be, you know, like some of my biggest inspirations mm -hmm. are like six feet under. And, you know, like... 
catastrophe and like fleabag and shows that are like about these like intense like family dynamics and so yeah it was just such an integral part of the story to me uh, almost more primary than the big sweeping epic aspect of it absolutely so adam you have an alternate moniker under which you make um prog rock and electronica music garbage person which first of all that name speaks to me and how i am as just like a human being in the world mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. second also uh that audio was my work soundtrack today so you know thanks oh um, yeah, you're welcome for that that's good <laughs> uh so i want to talk about um music composition uh process and what's What's different about how you compose music for things like Garbage Person um, versus how you compose podcast themes? Because you've also composed, of course, the theme to Forgive Me, um, to Phantom Wise, uh, Unmapped, all these other podcasts. The two are trying to achieve the same goal, which is tell some kind of story. But a song, as far as like what I would do with, a, with Garbage Person... Um, or any of the bands that I was in previously is kind of like, okay, let's like take this one idea and, you know, sort of flesh it out into these like first chorus, verse, bridge, you know, they're basically, you know, kind of have a structure and then maybe we deviate from that, but really like kind of like take somebody on a familiar you know, three minute, five minute journey across this thing. Um, and, and I think I like a lot of things that are very dynamic, that have big ups and downs, um, which you'll hear in my music and um, both in something like Gar Garbage Person and in my scores. But the scores are different because they use some of the same pieces, but a lot of it is more... Um, like less melodically driven in certain ways, right? Because especially in a podcast format, we're really trying to have these, like we need people to pay attention to the dialogue first and foremost, and then our, it's supposed to support and like lift that and contextualize uh, what's happening uh, in the story, in the dialogue and in the other sound. Um, so maybe it's just a little bit more droney and maybe we're just using certain chord progressions um, to kind of highlight uh, certain ways that we're supposed to feel about things. I have um, a bunch of different things that I've like assigned to ideas in the show. So anytime you hear the the ba da 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 da, you know, which is like in the the main theme. Basically, I took a bunch of parts of the main theme and then applied that to a bunch of different pieces of the story. So the ba-da-da-da-da, that comes in along, like whenever anyone is talking about their relationship with Windfall or like as, about Windfall as a concept, like with Wanda and like the way that the structure works, it's like that theme kind of comes up and is comes in different forms of notes it's really just those that series of five notes but it might be played in a different way it might be played at a different tempo it might be you know baseline it might be the like top part of a piano piece um that helps drive you know that feeling um a sort of example of this is in episode four um 
Helena is talking with her therapist and there's sort of these dueling ideas between uh, Helena and her therapist and it alternates that sort of that line alternates between sort of a major and a minor um, kind of feeling and so it's like each one of them is like contextualizing it in the way that they feel about it um, and so the music reflects that So I've got one last question I would love to talk um, about Forgive Me, which is the second podcast that you're releasing under Rogue Dialogue, and it is a complete 180 from Windfall because it is a satirical sitcom about religion in a small town. So tell us a little bit about this work's inception and what people can expect from it. So um, my co-creator on that show, Jack Marone, is also from SUNY Purchase. He was one of my best friends there. Um, and after college, we briefly, for a period of five <laughs> months before I got fired, worked together. Uh, and he pitched me this idea on the subway one day. And this was like, uh, he, I don't even think he was listening to any fiction podcast. And he was just like, what if a comedy, but in a Catholic confessional? And I was like, that is a great idea. Um, and I just, it sat in the back of my head for so long. And, and there was a point in time where we, we had no idea what windfall would be. And Adam and Josh and I were talking about this idea in a church confessional, but if it had gotten, like, if we had gotten our grubby little paws on it, it would have been like a Twin Peaks style, like someone's murdered and like very much like you know a podcast from that year uh and that's all it would have been um and it just never felt right to me to do that idea without um jack and at the time at that time in his life he wasn't he, he couldn't dedicate you know that much of his life to something like this so i just sort of kept it on the back burner um but then we produce Windfall and I was like, we need to be able to make something else as well. And for Adam's benefit and for all of our benefit, it <laughs> needs to be not Windfall. Um, meanwhile, I'm going to blame Adam for Sounds this good. unequivocally. He is the one that told us that we needed to make a big, giant, massive story. That was from the beginning. So he can complain about it all he wants. Rightfully I'm pouting, so. I'm pouting profusely, but, but he, it was his he's idea. correct. Very impressive pouting. It was, it was, <laughs> it was his idea. Um, but yeah, so like once I had a first like very, very rough cut of the pilot, like there was maybe a little bit of sound design. Mostly it was a dialogue cut. There was maybe the, the theme slapped on. I sent it to Jack and I just said to him, I was like, we're going to make the show. Like you and I are going to sit down and we're going to make the show. And, and right now I'm busy. So you're going to write it first and then I'll come in and, you know, I'll help you brainstorm characters and I'll help you, you know, rewrite the drafts when we've got a draft. But you're going to take it because it's very actually inspired a lot by his own upbringing. Um, he grew up in Rochester. He went to a, a Catholic school growing up. And so it's so much like embedded into his childhood that I really wanted, you know, his voice to come through there. Uh, and it's been such a joy to work on, especially it took us a while. We, we, we recorded these episodes last fall, but it took us a while to figure out what they should sound like because 
Jack and I, you know, it was like, this is, this is a new confessional. What's the sound design? You know, what does this show sound like? And we didn't really know. And it was like, how do we make this interest, like more interesting than these two people just talking to each other the whole time? And that's when Adam finally had the idea of like, I'm going to sound design the, the monologues that are like flashbacks. And it sort of just fully clicked mm-hmm. into place of what the show was supposed to sound like. Um, and I had always told him, I was like, you don't have to score this one. You can do less work. Like, just, just like, don't. Like, Oops. it's okay. Oops. And then he decided to score it. Um, because right. he's Adam. As we mentioned earlier, does. Adam doesn't know how to um, sleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. But Adam, do you want to speak to a little bit about like how you and Jack came to the sound of yeah, the music I, of the show? I tried to write a few things that were too Catholic. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I just that's an extremely, it's an extremely good line. Like, oh, this isn't fun uh, in any way. Specifically, uh, yeah, I don't know. It, I was trying to find something that like had uh, a lot of church music, like in in what. Well, Catholic church music is very like, like avoidant of the devil's, you know, tones and whatnot with tritones and all of these things. Um, and, And I was just like, I didn't really know how to write that. And I was trying to like lean in too hard on that. And then I was thinking about, it's like, what are the like quirky comedy things that I enjoy that sort of, cause sometimes forgive me can be, you know, sort of, quirky and funny sometimes um the our third episode which will we're actually i'm working on now um is definitely a little bit more tender and somber and then the like fourth episode is just like bonkers balls to the wall ridiculous <laughs> like, it's like i can't wait for that one i'm dreading it I a little bit wait. but it's just like the show's all over the place so i was trying to find something that was like okay how do i make this like dynamic in this way and i kept thinking about okay like I heart Huckabees and these like movies from the like early 2000s that had this like sort of bouncy feeling to them, but had the ability to like bounce back and forth. And so I was like, oh, like, let me try to do this like John Bryan type of thing. Um, and as soon as I said that to Jackie was like, that's it. Like, that's what you got to do. Cause like, that's a big inspiration of mine. And like, oh, I'm nice. going to be very happy with that idea so it's kind of like i've found this mix of you know the these like sort of kind of like happy majory chords but sometimes if you play them like you know the wrong major chord and or the wrong minor chord next to a major chord it like still sounds happy but it's not quite um so try to find that balance of like this kind of complicated relationship with uh, religion that we all have. That's amazing. And I love that. Um, one of the things when I, when I started playing the first episode of forgive me, I was just like, Oh yeah, this music is like bouncy. It's good. (laughs) I like, I like started bouncing when I was like listening to it. I was listening to forgive me while I was working Mm -hmm. and I was just like, my, I'm typing in time to the music. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. <laughs> yeah. 
I really enjoyed having you on the show. This was a wonderful interview. Thank you for coming on to RDR. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. Support Windfall and more of Rogue Dialogue's audio work by joining their Patreon at patreon.com slash rogue dialogue. Radio Drama Revival runs on Steam, Gears, and good old-fashioned audience support. If you'd like to help keep us afloat in featuring new, diverse, unique fiction podcasts and their creators, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Other than Patreon, you can also support Radio Drama Revival by buying merch at our shop at radiodramarevival.com slash shop. If you pick up that tote, you might be able to fit your next order of robes into it before Root calls. And now we bring you our moment of will. Hello. You know what this interview of Windfall made me think of? Mad Max Fury Road. You know what's a perfect film? Mad Max Fury Road. If you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, I am not here to judge you and I am not here to make you feel like you are lesser than for missing out on something that is generally agreed upon as a cultural touchstone. It's okay. It's okay. I would just recommend that if you have the time and energy, you you check it out if you have a second. Now, I am not typically a huge action film person. Do love some Terminator, not gonna lie. Do love some sci-fi horror, not gonna lie. Uh, But Mad Max Fury Road is just really phenomenal. And again, like Windfall, it's got some buckwild world building and is also painfully close to home. Now, what I think Windfall and Mad Max Fury Road excel in is bringing a sense of catharsis for how close to home these things hit. So if you're looking for a film that is really fun, really beautiful, and hits close to home, but in a way that might make you feel a little better, Mad Max Fury Road is hard to beat. If you've already seen it, hey, why not give it another watch? And if you haven't, highly recommend it. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Atfalati tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are seeking ways in which to donate to native communities, the Mi'kmaq fishermen of Nova Scotia are defending their treaty rights and have been suffering escalating violence at the hands of non-indigenous peoples after the Sipigonegadi First Nation launched a livelihood fishery. You can donate to the Sipigonegadi First Nation via an e-transfer to monica at sipigonegadi.ca or PayPal. This and more ways to support the Mi'kmaq are linked in the episode description. As I record this, we just found out that the Mi'kmaq bought 50% of Clearwater, the largest lobster fishing company on the East Coast. Congratulations. If you aren't sure what treaty rights are and the significance of treaties to native and indigenous peoples, you can start your research with the articles linked in the episode description, which include a history article by writer and former tribal judge Ruth Hopkins, an article debunking myths about treaties by Taylor McLean from the Center of Indigenous Studies at the University of Toronto, and an opinion piece from The Globe and Mail by Sheldon Krasowski. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kuss. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams. Our senior interviews producer is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. 
our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our social media manager is Ann Baird. Our submissions editor is Rishi Goral. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhalgh and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Taker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>